Welcome to Real Britain, the podcast of my show on GB News. I'm Darren Grimes and you can catch me live every Saturday and Sunday afternoon from 2 till 3. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up with the best bits here every week. So here we go. Let's talk about the issues that matter to you in Great Britain. We're joined now by Sir Geoffrey Clifton-Brown, the Conservative MP for the Cotswolds, who raised an urgent question in the House of Commons this week. Sir Geoffrey, you wanted the process of getting Ukrainians into the UK to be sped up. How would you actually advocate or propose that the government do that? Well, I've had two interventions in the Commons this week, one on the urgent question and again on Thursday. I'm glad to say that some of what I was calling for has now happened. Uh, The major step is that anybody who's got a Ukrainian passport can now apply online, which means that they don't have to travel sometimes huge distances to a centre to get uh, accredited. So that is the first major thing that's been improved. We will get from uh, this week the uh, sponsorship scheme where any individual or any business can actually sponsor a Ukrainian to come to this country and possibly give them uh, accommodation and food. So again, the wheels are turning, but to my mind, still far too slowly. Yes, and that there is, there's some controversy. Of course, President Macron has been out saying that the government's response hasn't been good enough. Do you think that the whole controversy around Calais is because of the, as you well know, English, the crisis at the English Channel that has been going on all of last year and so insofar as we're into this year too? Do you think that's why the government is loath to actually do anything as far as Calais is concerned? Well, uh, again, I was pushing on this subject as well. They are sending, setting up a processing centre at Lille, which is where the cross-channel tunnel uh, people are processed. So, and they are going to provide, they say, transport from Calais to the short distance to Lille. So it may make more sense to do it in Lille, where they've actually got proper facilities. I don't really mind where they do it, as long as they speed it up. Yes. So Boris says he'll give the details of a second visa scheme on Monday. What do you think we can actually expect from the announcement? I'm not asking you to be Mystic Meg. I assume we've got some sort of indication of where the government's going on this. Well, again, I think they need to simplify it all. Um, They insist on the forms being uh, done in English. If they insist on the forms being done in English, as I was saying in the House, they need to have adequate translators to make sure that people who don't speak English and don't read English are able to fill the forms in properly. And their forms are hugely complicated. I think they could simplify them. I think they need more staff in post, working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, not nine till five from Monday to Friday. That's just simply not acceptable. And I actually think we could probably go further. We could send a few transport planes out to Poland and actually collect several hundred of these people have been sitting waiting around in in reception centres. So I think there's a lot more we could do. Yeah, I mean, Sir Geoffrey, the United Nations have said that more than 2.5 million people have now fled Ukraine, more than 1.5 million refugees crossing the border into Poland. The UK has taken in over 1,000 At a time when, as you well know, we've got an NHS crisis in this country, we've got an education crisis in this country, we've got a housing crisis in this country, there's not enough social houses to go around. How many, realistically, 
people do you think we can take in? Because a lot of viewers watching this show now will be saying, yes, well, it's all well and good for Sir Geoffrey to say, as my heart does too, goes out to these people who are in the most dire situation where their homes have been potentially destroyed by Russian warfare. Do you actually think there's a problem in, in actually saying, come one, come all into the United Kingdom? Well, all I can tell you, Darren, is that I've been out in my constituency this morning and people have come up to me and said, I'm Labour. I don't normally agree with you, but actually on this, you are absolutely right. The British people want to be generous. There's a large number of people, I think, out there who would more than happily welcome uh, a family into their homes, at least on a short term basis. This is what the British public want. And I think the Home Office and the government should be stretching every sinew to do this. Now, I accept, as you say, Darren, they've had all sorts of difficulties with COVID and everything else. I also accept that they've had to process over 100,000 British nationals overseas in Hong Kong. They've also had to process people from coming... Yeah, I mean, do you actually think that we can afford it? Can we actually afford to do this? Can afford it. We're, we're a wealthy country. These are... are uh, the same family as us. They are Europeans, unlike some of these other crises. I think we, we need to be generous. And that's what the public want. If that's what the public want and they're right to want it, then the government should respond. Well, Sir Geoffrey, though, just saying they're Europeans, therefore, you know, let, let's be generous to them. People might well point to other countries around the world that are, have been suffering war. You've got the Yemen, you've got Syria, you've got other places. Well, actually, we haven't been as generous to them. Some might say that we've got quite an exclusionary refugee policy here. Well, I don't know whether that's the case or not. But all I do know is, talking to my constituents this morning, that they actually want us to be generous to the Ukrainians. They've seen the horrific shelling and bombing that's been going on in that country, completely, um, uh, you know, caused by Russia. And they actually think it is so ghastly that we ought to be being... Uh, do what we can to help. And I know we've been very generous in terms of humanitarian aid. We've spent, we've been leading the world in sanctions. We've been leading the world in, in some um, uh, weaponry. But actually, they're saying that's all very well. But actually, we want to, we want to welcome. I mean, after all, a thousand into a country like us is a pretty small amount. When you have on your bulletin that the European estimates there may be up to seven million people. Now, these are being accommodated in Poland and the frontline states at the moment, but it's only right that we should all, and we want to, share the burden of that. So, Geoffrey, I don't know if you've got a spare room, but will you be welcoming a refugee into your home? I would, potentially. The problem is that I moved from the country during the week and then up to London, uh, uh, the other way around, to London during the week and, and my constituency at the weekend. So I'm not permanently in one place. But I would certainly look to see how it could be done, if it could be done. Sir Geoffrey Clifton Brown there, Conservative MP for the Cotswolds and the Treasurer of the 1922 Committee. Thank you very much for joining me on Real Britain today. It's time for Grime Watch, one place where we can all have our say on what's going on in the world is social media. So during Grime Watch, we'll hear what you've been saying about news stories this week. One of those was about John Burko. He was found, former Speaker of the House of Commons, of course, he was found to have been a serial bully while House of Commons Speaker. Burko, now he was there for 10 years, 10 whopping years between 2009 
and 2019, in a time which included debates, of course, about Brexit. Lots of you have been getting in touch about Burgo. On Facebook, Andrew said, this report is so deserved of the awful man. You only had to listen to the way he spoke to MPs in the chamber to assume what he was like away from the media glare. Very interesting point. Jane said, is the evidence of him being a bully the same as the evidence of Home Secretary Pretty Patel being a bully? On a similar theme, Mikey also tweeted, Pretty Patel was found to have broken the same code of conduct, but Boris decided to turn a blind eye to it. Sort of makes it impossible for the Tories to attack Labour on this one, I'm afraid. Thomas said, he certainly tried his best to stop Brexit, but his best wasn't good enough. Thank God. Jeffrey said he started out as a right-wing Tory. Clearly, he decided that it was not a path to power and fame. So he became a left-wing supporter of Labour. Odious and deceitful little man. Dina tweeted, Burko had the sense to oppose Brexit and now we see the results. Well, interesting thoughts, folks. I'm sure you'll agree. But it's important to add, Mr Burko said the inquiry into the complaints was amateurish and based on tittle-tattle. And that's all we have time for on today's edition of Grime Watch. Now, to end the show, we're going to have a campus clash. Two students going head to head. Today's question is this. Does the government, does this government work for young people? Here to fight the corner, I'm joined by Nina Skinner from the University of Bristol and Billy Roberts from Newcastle University. Does it work for young people, Nina? Yes, I'd say that it certainly does. We've seen record levels of investment in particularly on mental health for young people. This government's bringing 400 new mental health teams to schools. There's also been investment in T-levels, job training programs for young people in the wake of COVID. Um, And there's also been record levels of investment in health issues that particularly affect young people. So I think it certainly does. Billy, what would you say to that? I assume, are you of the view that actually, I'm not sure you could say the lockdown policies did much for people in the way of mental health? No, they didn't, unfortunately. So I think mental health is uh, one of those bigger, bigger concerns. And I think coupled with some of the new inflationary pressures and the rising costs of living that some young people that are really, really suffering with, like energy and fuel crisis, that's going to be that's going to really hit hard for some of the people that are especially really, 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 excuse me, sorry, really, really young. Mm. And since there's an extra cost for these young people, there's going to be surging mental health crisis. Nina, are you worried? I mean, I have no idea what your socioeconomic background is, so I do forgive me for actually prying there, but are you worried about getting on the housing ladder? Because millions of young people are actually saying, I just can't afford to do it. Yes, it definitely is a concern for me, especially as someone who wants to live in London. But um, something that I have to assuage that concern is the help to buy scheme. And in the financial year 2019 to 2020, a record number 55,600 first time buyers use that scheme in order to buy houses. And um, I don't believe that home ownership is a right. Home ownership is a privilege that comes with um, economic stability, personal economic stability. Billy, then, are you worried about that? Do you want to just come back on what's just been said there? And also, are you worried actually about never seeing a pension, for example? Well, pensions, we're we're going to retire a lot later than some of our grandfathers and our grandmothers. It's going to be, it's one of those things that we have to sort of accept because we're not going to be able to get, we've mentioned housing, we're not going to get onto the housing ladder. We're going to be renting for most of our lives, unfortunately. So, 
actually, we're going to be stuck in that consistent paying off our rent rather than having a secured home that we can buy. But what do you say to Nina, though, saying, well, actually, I don't think housing is a right, so suck it up, buttercup. You didn't actually say that, Nina. I added on that flourish. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's not a right, but unfortunately, it's because... It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a right. However, the average house prices have increased dramatically, and it, I don't think it's fair that it, our grandfathers and our grandmothers, for example, have that element of we were able to buy us at this price. Sure, there's differences over the years, but I don't think we should be able to. We don't have that right to say, well, it's so much more expensive for the same 21, 22 year old. Yeah, can I just ask the two of you then about the green agenda? How can burdening young people with a net zero agenda that's going to cost billions and billions of quid be beneficial to young people? Is this not putting a noose around the next generation as far as the debt burden is concerned? Nina, I'll start with you. So, yeah, I do absolutely agree. I think that net zero by 50 is not realistic and it will do far more harm than good to people's livelihoods. Um, And then, of course, all the things that follow from that, like people's health and job prospects. Um, And you've mentioned before the green belt, which is, you know, something that needs to be massively altered and redacted if new houses are going to be built to make home ownership for the average man and woman affordable again. Um, And yet nobody's voting for a party that will do that. So, yes, we as a generation have problems with with housing, but it's something that, uh, you know, A, in a democracy, we have the power to fix um, and B, we're not doing that. Yeah. Billy, just in a word then, does this government work for young people? Have you changed your mind? No, I unfortunately haven't. It's the nature of the Conservative Party. Beautifully put. Thank you very much. Nina Skinner and Billy Roberts, thank you very much for your time. You've been watching Real Britain with me, Darren Grimes, folks. Now, the former US ambassador to the UK, Woody Johnson, said something that was considered to be quite controversial at the time. He warned Prime Minister Theresa May that there would need to be trade-offs as the British government divvies out spending across things like health, education, transport, with defence and security. And I'm afraid, folks, we're seeing with crystal clarity what getting that balance wrong looks like and how right the warning from our American cousins was. You cannot have prosperity unless you have security. And you cannot have security if you prioritise spending on all other areas but defence. We all want better hospitals, better schools, better social care, better pensions and better transport. But we'll not have access to any of that, folks, if we allow our nation to continue to dwindle away its share of GDP spent on security. President Trump was best known in Europe for his robust stance on the need for European, well, for all of us, actually, to stump up our bit to spend more on defence. And his warning on national security grounds that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline connecting Russia to Germany was a stupid move. He even sent former Chancellor Angela Merkel a mini white flag to highlight what he deemed to be an act of economic surrender in the binding of Europe's hands economically to Putin's energy supply. It was wrong to assume America can keep the world safe on its own. Europe now has to play its part. 
It beggars belief, folks, but it wasn't even a couple of months back that our nation leading the world in preparing Ukraine for this invasion didn't request permission to fly through German airspace to deliver weaponry to Kiev for fear of the Germans saying, nein. Now the whole of Europe is waking up to the threat of Russian boots on their continent's grounds. The Australians, recognising that President Xi of China is watching intently of how the West allows Putin to get away with what it's doing in Kyiv, licking his lips at the prospect of marching into Taiwan in a similar territorial land grab. And, and then who else will they attack? You know, prosperity is utterly worthless, I repeat that, folks, if we're unable to defend it. So our Aussie cousins are spending, they're increasing their spending on its armed forces by a third. We could start by protecting our NHS, by preventing the abuse of taxpayer money that's wasted on a growing middle tier of NHS wackery and wokery over spending on doctors and nurses. It's reported that the NHS is spending 60 grand hiring equality and inclusion managers, as well as ditching our net stupid energy policies in favour of one that marries security of our supply, keeping our economy's lights on and taking into consideration the realities of geopolitics. We also need to snap the Treasury from this view it's held for many years now. It's been a view that in 2010 led to a plan to cut the defence budget, reducing our fighting force by about a third. A view that saw the kind of invasion we're seeing in Ukraine as an anachronistic relic of the past. How naive, folks. How foolish we've been. We know that we cannot borrow more. There isn't a payday lender we can use to top up the nation's current account. Like many of you out there watching the show right now, times are tough and are getting tougher. I dread opening energy bills and I know that's the same for many up and down the country. Even our Treasury is feeling the pinch. So we have to make tough decisions on spending now. As the Americans reevaluate their turn to Asia to head off the Chinese threat, we have to recognise here at home that in order to play our part, we we'll have to be honest about the tough choices required. But what I will say, folks, is my God, how wrong those commentators were on our own shores who said post-Brexit blighty would be diminished as a nation, unable to totter about on the world stage without the Brussels conglomerate holding a hand. Who do the Ukrainians credit with their military success thus far? It's Britain. Who signed a deal to share nuclear submarine technology with Australia? Britain. Who's potentially joining the economic might of the CPTPP trading bloc, a Pacific trading bloc? Britain. We folks are doing pretty well here. We might be small in size, but as usual, punch way above our weight. But folks, in order for that to continue, we need to get real on spending more to protect the prosperity that pays for that healthcare, education, social care, universal credit, education, and much else. And one more thing, folks. It's reported that Ukrainian soldiers say, God save the Queen, as they fire these NLAW anti-tank launchers, which are made in Northern Ireland. If we want to continue seeing our monarch and our flag Stand for freedom and liberty. We need to spend to defend. What do you think, folks? Is it time to spend more on defence? 
Welcome back to Real Britain with me, Darren Grimes. Now, folks, I make absolutely no bones about it. When we get the spring statement from the Chancellor Rishi Sunak later this month, I think we ought to see increases to our defence spending. But how do we actually go about building a stronger and more resilient armed forces in Great Britain? Well, I'm delighted to say I'm joined now by the Conservative MP for Rillian Wickford, Mark Francois. He joins me now. Mark Thanks for your company. Seeing what's going on in Europe right now, do you reckon that this is a, a real wake-up call and you're saying, how hey, folks smell the coffee and spend more on defence? Yeah, yes, Darren, I do. Uh, my father, Reginald Francois, was a, was a D-Day veteran. Very proud of that. So I've always agreed with that old maxim, defence is the first duty of government. So... I serve on the House of Commons Defence Committee. We've been saying for quite a while, for some years now, that we should spend about 3% of our gross domestic product on defence. At the moment, we spend about 2.3. Our, our unofficial motto, if you like, was three to keep us free. So yes, I do believe, and so do my fellow members on the committee, it's an all-party committee, that defence spending should rise. Yeah. What do you think? Where are areas where the Chancellor could actually find a little bit of leeway in your... I don't want you to sort of take out the, the Treasury's spending review right now, but where are areas where you reckon... Because we read stories, Mark, all the time about things that the NHS are doing, spending on money on diversity and inclusion managers, and taxpayers are rightly thinking they're taking the mix slightly. Well, look, the first thing we need to do is look to our own within defence itself. So the first question we have to ask is the money we're already allocating defence, is that well spent? And I regret to tell you the answer in many cases is no. The All-Party Public Accounts Committee, which I also serve on, concluded last November, their words, that the UK's defence procurement system is, I quote, broken. Mm. Of the 36 biggest defence procurement programmes in the Ministry of Defence, not a single one, not one, is running on track in terms of both time and budget. So the first thing we have to do, before we try and take money from any other department or ask for a tax rise, is to make sure that we're spending the MOD's budget effectively. Yeah. The system, I'm afraid, is broken. I don't mean to worry your viewers, but that's the brutal truth. So the first thing we've got to do is to completely review how we buy our military equipment and fix that system so, if you like, we get more bang for the buck. We've got to get that right, and then if we do put more money into defence, hopefully we will get more bang for the buck for that too. But the MOD needs to look, to, you know, to take the plank out of its own eye, Darren. Mark, as you well know, in 2010, there were, of course, those cuts to the size of the armed forces. Do you now look back at that and think, God, the Cameron government was naive in the extreme to think that what we're seeing in Ukraine wouldn't happen in the modern warfare age? Well, uh, I'm one of those who's always been rather hawkish about Russia. But, Darren, let's be honest, in 2010, when that government came into office, Gordon Brown had almost bankrupted the country. So there had to be some very painful choices. It was just financially inevitable. Where I think we've gone wrong is we've continued, for instance, a process of reducing the size of the British Army. We've 
We had something a year ago called the Integrated Review, which wanted to reduce the British Army from 82,000 regulars to 73,000. Some of us on the Defence Committee at the time said that was pretty daft. Well, now to do that in light of Ukraine would be completely bonkers. So the first thing we've got to do is to reverse that cut completely. Look, if we're dealing with Vladimir Putin and the people around him, you know, these are mainly ex-Soviet KGB or GRU intelligence officers. These are not softies. These are ruthless people. And they're running a government and an army that is prepared to shell civilians randomly, which is why we had that tragedy in Mariupol recently, where they struck a maternity hospital. You're not going to deter people like that just with slogans. And sanctions are helpful. They are necessary, but not sufficient. What will deter Putin and his acolytes is military strength. And that means having an armed forces in the UK and in NATO, which is fit to fight tonight, as the saying has it, not in a few years' time. So the other thing we should do is we should look at the readiness of all our armed forces and where there are deficiencies, and there are, and the Russians know full well what there are, I'm not giving anything away, we should put those deficiencies right as a matter of urgency. That is the best deterrent that we have to persuade Putin not to try his luck and move on into the Baltic states or Poland, which would trigger an Article 5 guarantee in NATO and lead to a wider war. You deter people by persuading them that you are strong and willing to fight. So we need to spend our defence pounds very, very carefully in order to get the maximum deterrent value. Because remember, Darren, the, the aim of armed forces is to prevent by persuading any potential aggressor, in this case Putin, they couldn't possibly win. If you actually get to war, you've half failed in a sense, because your deterrence didn't work the way it should do. So to come back to where you came in, this is a brutal wake-up call yeah. for the whole of NATO, including the United Kingdom, and we ignore it at our peril. Mark, I really hope you don't mind, but we've had some breaking news, so I'm going to ask you, we're talking about stability and, and international security. We've had sad news today that the US photojournalist Brent Reynolds has, has been killed. What's your reaction to that? Is this, this is just escalating in a really, really awful way. Well, that is, that's a tragedy. Um, there's sometimes tension between politicians and journalists, Darren, as you, as you know. But, but this is in a completely different field. Here's a journalist, I'm afraid I never met the gentleman, but, you know, who literally put his life on the line to report to those back in, a, in the free West what is going on. And if he's been killed effectively in the line of duty, that is a tragedy. And my heart goes out to, to his family and his colleagues. But, but it just drives home, I'm afraid, in a very brutal way how dangerous this situation is and reinforces the fact that we have to understand how brutal a regime we're dealing with and we have to plan accordingly. But that's a, that's a tragic loss if, if a journalist has been killed reporting from the front line. Yeah, Mark, I couldn't agree with you more. That's Mark Francois. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon and for joining me on Real Britain.
You're with GB News on telly, DAB and online. Welcome back, folks. It's now time for Grime Watch, one place where we can all have our say on what's going on in the world is social media. So during Grime Watch, we'll hear what you at home have been saying about news stories this week. It's hard now not to see a headline about the rising cost of living, energy bills, the weekly shop, prices at the pump and monthly phone contracts are all Going up on Facebook, I asked the question, do the Conservatives still think now is the time for their tax increases? And Leslie said they are not Conservative at all. The national insurance hike needs stopping and the VAT on fuel. Rob said that the government are to blame due to the mismanagement of our energy. The Tories have had power for 12 years, but still blame Labour for getting it wrong. We should have had more nuclear power on stream by now if they were competent. And Susan said, and what are the pensioners supposed to do? Their pensions cut and prices going up. It's going to feel like being locked down again. But this time we'll be shivering because we can't afford the cost. Karen says the government has an obsession with handing out taxpayers' money to foreign countries whilst hammering British citizens. It can't continue. And Dean puts it simply and says Conservatives and the Labour Party equally unelectable. Patricia says I live in a rural area and rely on oil for heating. Really important point from Patricia here, by the way. Just before Christmas, 500 litres cost 300 quid. Today it's gone up to 1,000 at 51. Thankfully, I still have oil, but many in the village are now unable to top up due to the scandalous cost. That is a really important point here, and I think we forget about rural communities too much, too easily. Another topic I put to you online was about help and causes closer to home. I posted, in this country, we have a healthcare crisis, a social care crisis, an energy crisis, a housing crisis, not enough teachers and not enough of much else. Two, whilst I do agree we ought to help Ukrainians, what are we doing for Brits here that are desperate for help? Liz commented saying we need to seriously sort out our infrastructure. More housing is a priority. Liz, I couldn't agree with you more. Lynn said we're heading for a deep recession, but unless the government does something now to stop our cost of living increases, there will be much hardship for the public. I don't see how causing a global re recession will help Ukraine. Paul says charity always should begin at home. We cannot afford to help the world. Lorraine commented, this country is on its knees, but we can give millions in foreign aid just like that. And Isabel said, our crisis pale into insignificance compared to Ukraine. We are safe. We are not being slaughtered and bombed. Now, folks, Really important comments there from all of you. Please do continue getting involved. Another story I clocked this week is that the privileged Prats, frankly, in Extinction Rebellion, they announced that they're planning a new wave of protests that they hope will cause maximum non-violent disruption at UK oil refineries next month. I can think, folks, of no clearer an indication that this extreme green movement is one that is fundamentally anti-human. How could it not be when it seeks to disrupt energy producers at a time when the average cost for energy in this country is hitting four, 
thousand quid a year and our energy security is in peril. The modern day green movement to me, folks, is at its core anti-human. If you think of human beings as being not more than a blemish on the natural environment, of course you're going to want to roll back the progress humans have made. They won't be happy, folks, until we're all crawling around in loincloths and living in caves. And I haven't got my summer body ready. They're extremists and ought to be treated as such, if you ask me. Now, that's all we have time for for Grime Watch today. Thanks for listening to Real Britain, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed it, leave us a comment. I'll see you next time for more Real Britain.